All right, Genesis House, let's uh, stand and read 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 26 through 40. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may, be, all may learn, and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask for their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but in all things we must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Please be seated. All right. Hard to believe, but today's the last sermon on the topic of spiritual gifts at Genesis House, at least for this year anyway. I hope it's been beneficial for you, as it has been for me, in terms of our learning and the things that we've had to maybe modify in our thinking in the way we look at spiritual gifts. But as you know, it's our custom to do the same thing every week, and that's start with an introduction. And we're going to do that again by reviewing last week's sermon. So last week we began in chapter 14, seeing Paul continue to correct a problem that had taken hold of the worship services in Corinth. And that was the fact that they were abusing the gift of tongues in the assembly during corporate worship. And you remember what it had been like if you'd been there in that church, in this quest to be spiritual, in a sign of maturity, at least they thought, and a belief that God was amongst them, everyone would speak in these heavenly languages that nobody could understand, and they would do it simultaneously and over top of one another as they competed for airtime. And Paul's concern was a huge one, both to the believers and to the unbelievers alike who were listening. For the believer, this was a problem because, because due to the lack of intelligibility in these heavenly languages, the, edifi- the believers weren't being edified. They weren't being built up or strengthened because they had no idea what was being said. And it didn't help the unbelievers' cause either. It wasn't drawing people closer to God to walk into an assembly like this. It was pushing them farther away. He actually says, the the unbelievers in your presence think you're crazy. They think you're insane. So Paul's big corrective last week was the need for intelligibility so the entire church could be built up and strengthened. Well, this week he continues with the correction, but this time he seeks... uh, to edify the church through the use of order, the use of order in the service. And so he wants to explain that this is necessary also for edification. 
Hence why he says this in verse 26. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Remember last week, six times, six times the word edification is used in chapter 14. That is Paul's priority. He wants you and I to be built up and strengthened in our faith so we want to persevere in our walk with the Lord when we walk out of this building. If you don't get edified in this church on a regular basis and you're not strengthened in your faith, you need to leave Genesis house and go somewhere else. That is the purpose for the church gathering. That's the reason why you come to church, is to be edified. And you seek to go to a place where you're strengthened spiritually. Now, there are three areas of correction. One was in their use of tongues in, in order. They also needed t- teaching in order in terms of prophecy. And apparently there was a group of rowdy women in the church at uh, Corinth. I mean, Genesis, I mean Corinth. Uh, and so they needed correction as well. So let's deal with these three groups. Okay, so first, order in tongues. How do we do this? Verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, notice there's three different instructions there. Number one, there's a limitation to how many can speak. A limitation. He says two or three at the most. Two or three at the most. There are two possibilities to what he means here. And I'll let you pick the one you think it is, because he doesn't tell us. Option number one, he's limiting the number of people speaking in tongues in sequence. In in other words, one person goes, another person goes, another person goes, and there's a sequence, and then uh, there's an interpreter. Or it could be actually the number of just period in the service. My suggestion is it's the number of people in the service. The only reason I say this is because what's the problem in Corinth? They're zealous for this gift, and they're out of control in this gift, and so he wants to limit it in the church gathering for them. But again, so it could be limit the number in sequence or limit the number per service. My suggestion is per service. But then he gives a second instruction, and that's the format and how these gifts of tongues were to be heard. He says each one must take turn. Each one take turn. So they weren't to speak simultaneously and over top of one another, but they were to take turns. And thirdly, none of the tongues were to be spoken at all, even if you had the gift from God, unless there was an interpreter. Verse 27, or sorry, um, yeah, verse 28, he says this. You must must keep silent if there's no interpreter. Now, this would make sense based on last week's sermon. If you missed last week's sermon, it was awesome. We had Pat speak in French. We had my, my, my mom speak in Inuktitut, the Eskimo language. And we give an illustration of what an interpretation or why an interpretation was necessary. So please listen to that sermon if you want to hear that one. But again, interpretation allowed for edification, and that's why it needed to be done that way. This is a super important church because I want to tell you about a story. It happened about maybe eight years ago, and I was in my building back here behind me in the gym, and I was training a lady who attended a charismatic service in church, in, in town. And she said to me, Andrew, you wouldn't believe how awesome Sunday was. And I said, tell me about it. Like, I want to hear about it. She says, all of a sudden, God's presence came into our room, and all of the church unanimously started speaking in tongues. And you could just, she goes, it was amazing. Like, I just, we just were emotionally, like, felt so strengthened. And God was there amongst us. It was a pouring out of his spirit. And she was talking to me about how 
like it was an amazing day of God showing up. If we look at this, it sounds, it sounds right. It sounds like she's got some validity. Think about everything you've learned in chapter 14. What's the problem in Corinth? That's the problem in Corinth. They believe God's presence is there is because they're speaking in tongues. He says, no, the presence of whether I'm there is how you love one another. <laughs> they think that the, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. He calls them, uh, he says, you're like a noisy gong. And he calls them basically babes in Christ. Like this is a really important church. And God's presence wasn't there just because they're speaking in tongues. He's writing this as a rebuke. And here he says, you must do it in turn and in sequence so, there's no, so everything's orderly. And the unbelievers there don't think you're crazy. There's so many correctives. So again, her, her understanding was an emotional one based on how she felt in the service. But Paul would have corrected that church on the spot well, maybe not on the spot, but after the service, you're taking the leadership aside and says, you guys need to fix this church. So again, really important. But here's what I don't want you to swing out the other side and think, write tongues off altogether. That's not the point either. He says, you can still speak in tongues, but just do it in an orderly way. There must be an interpreter. Each take your turn and so on. All right. How about prophecy? Well, there's three instructions given in prophecy as well. But before I give you instructions, I want to clear up what prophecy is and what it isn't. You see, many in our churches believe that prophecy is a reference only to the scriptures. And it's the word of God. So therefore, if you're given the gift of prophecy or to prophesy is the ability to teach the word of God. Um, People who often hold that view are called cessationists. I explained the difference between a cessationist a continuist in my sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to listen to that, you can as well. But basically, cessationists believe this. There's no need for prophecy today because those who held the office of prophets back then are no longer needed because once the apostles died and passed on, everything that you needed in terms of the writing of the word of God was complete. So the prophets helped further God's revelation. Once the apostles died, no more need for prophecy because now we have everything written in here, and that's all we need for living out the Christian life. Now, in fairness, there is times in, pro- in the New Testament where prophecy is a reference to Scripture alone, so one could go that way. First Peter 1 Peter 1.20, Peter 1.20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. So clearly, in this context, prophecy is a reference to Scripture. There's no doubt about it. That is what it is. So when Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah prophesied and it was put in the Word of God, that's what it became. When an apostle uh, prophesied and spoke the Word of God, that's what it became. It became Scripture. But I want to suggest to you from the context that prophecy is not a reference to the ability to teach God's Word. Now, just so you know, for some of you that may believe this is still to be true, I was on your side of the camp many years ago. But through the studying of the scriptures, I've changed my viewpoint, and I'll show you the passages that have come to make me realize that I have to rethink my definition of prophecy. Number one, although prophecy is a form of instruction, it's distinguished from teaching. Okay? Turn with me to chapter 12, 28. We read this about three weeks ago, 1228.
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Prophecy is distinguished from teaching in 1228. Not only this, um, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 11, he, Paul writes this, Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers for the equipping of the church. He distinguishes again between prophecy having a role and teaching having a role. Number two, prophecy in this context does not have the same as authority as scripture. So those of you who are nervous about this, hear me clearly. The prophecy in this context does not have the same authority necessarily as scripture. Why do I say that? Look at verse 29 in chapter 14. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. They have to pass judgment. So when someone speaks and says, I have a message from God, the corporate body has to go, well, hold on a second. Let me just evaluate to see if what we think is from God. Okay? And in 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, chapter, uh, 5 and verse 20, it says that there you must examine everything carefully to see if it's true. This is not the case with Scripture. <laughs> you don't have to evaluate if Scripture's truth, what's written in the Old Testament, what the words of Jesus are, what the apostles are, is absolute authority. That is the truth. We have to evaluate the interpretation of what the truth is saying, but we don't have to evaluate if it's from God or not. That's not from prophecy, because man's spirit can get mixed with God's spirit and get confused. But further clarity for this for me is actually found in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is really cool. He says this, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine them carefully, hold to fast, which is good. My commentary in my Bible says the Thessalonians were not to despise the teaching of God's word because my Bible commentary believes that prophetic utterances is a teaching of God's word. I start to think, is, could this be true? And then I thought, you know what? I'll go look at 1 Thessalonians in the whole context because that was written in chapter 5. There's only five chapters in the book, or maybe six, but there's very little. I think it's five, yeah. Paul never corrects one issue in the, in the Thessalonian church. There's not one reprimand in the entire church. In fact, read this. He says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God when, we, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which it performs its work in you, who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Does this sound like a church that despises the word of God? They received the word of God. They accepted it. It's performed its work in them. They're enduring suffering for the name of Jesus. Paul's complimenting them on their response to the word of God. Look at this verse. For chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you, a.k.a. the word of God, how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. Now we ask you to urge in the Lord Jesus to do more and more. Does it sound like a church despising the word of God? How about verse 9 and 10? Now as to the love of brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Again, apostolic authority, teaching the scriptures. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. 
This is a church that's sold out for Jesus Christ. They're enduring persecution. He sends Timothy to find out if they endured persecution, and they have. They've embraced the word of God. Chapter 1, you've turned from idols to, to serve a, a, uh, our living God. You've turned from sexual immorality to serve a living God. Everyone in the world knows about your faith. This is really cool, church. He, but he does say, do not despise prophetic utterances. Well, what would that mean? They're just like the Genesis House Church. How many of you like it when people come up to you and say, I have a word for the Lord for you. You're like, forget it. I'm out of here. What's it saying here, guys? You know, that's their attitude towards things. That's my attitude. What does he say? Don't despise them. Just give them a chance to speak. Don't panic, though. There's two, there's two criteria to, to evaluate here. We can, we can go through the corporate body and test it against the word of God. Those can be our criteria. Don't throw it out right away. Give the person a chance. In the Old Testament, if you were wrong, you were stoned. In the New Testament, you're not stoned. <laughs> you're just like, you might have it wrong. Your spirit's mixed with God's spirit, and you don't have it right. Okay, church? So let's just take a breather on prophecy. Number three. What's the third reason why I think prophecy is not the same as teaching the word of God? It's something different. Number three, Paul's instruction in verse 30. Look at this. He says, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Okay, so if I, here's what happens. I'm Rob standing and giving a prophetic message. And then what happens is God gives me a word. When I stand up to give my word, he has to remain silent now. So he has to defer to me because I'm next in line. Now, I find that interesting. I thought it would be the opposite way around. I thought I'd have to defer to him until he was finished. But for whatever reason, Paul says the next person has the word of God goes and the person speaking has to stop. Again, if this is, the, if this is a reference to teaching or a sermon, where in the New Testament is there any other precedence where you can stop the teacher so that you can now give your sermon? <laughs> Tony goes, Dex, wait a minute, I have a word from the Lord. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And Roger goes, wait a minute, I have a word from the Lord. Three minutes later, open your Bibles to Genesis 1.14. What in the world's going on here? It has to be something different than teaching the Word of God. Finally, it's a gift the entire church has to seek after, men and women alike. Men and women alike. Look at 14 verse 1. Pursue love, yet earnestly spirit desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Is that only to the men? Not a chance. Do you know why? In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, he says, when a woman prays or prophesies, she must keep her head covered. When a man prays or prophesies, he must remove his head covering. The issue isn't whether they're praying or prophesying in the church. It's about the, the symbol of authority on their head. And I might do a sermon on that in the First Corinthians series so we get that clear as well. But uh, the issue is not that their women are praying or prophesying. It's what they're wearing in relationship to uh, their praying and prophecy. 
Now, this is really, really important on two fronts. Number one, if it's teaching the word of God, and Paul says this, I want all women and all men to teach the word of God in the corporate assembly, you've got, two, you got uh, two big issues on your hands. Number one, James 3.1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. What's he saying? Dex, you better be careful what you say up front and make sure you have the authority of God's word understood before you get up in front of this congregation. Because if you mess up one of these people in here from your teaching, you stand in, a, you stand in judgment of me. You give account to me. Anybody who wishes they had my job, you just think about that verse. So when I come here, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the scriptures to say you work through these things as, we, as I work through these things. Now, I'm not trying to open up a can of worms here, and I've already preached on women in ministry in roles in uh, a year and a half ago or so in 1 Timothy, but this is, possesses a massive problem for those who hold the belief that a woman cannot take the position of a teacher over men in the corporate assembly. If you believe, if, if, like, like my commentary does, that, the, that women um, are to, um, are, let me think how we're going to say this. Yeah, if you believe that um, they're not to have a voice in the church, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says they're prophesying. If you believe the word of God is teaching, the prophecy is teaching the word of God, there's a contradiction. So therefore, it can't be the same thing. Revelation, prophecy can't be the teaching of Scripture. So what is it? Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, whereby a spontaneous revelation is given to an individual for the edification or conviction of others. Now, I get this mostly from last week. Last week, prophesy so that all may be edified. And in verse 25 and 24, he says, you prophesy so that those who are unbelievers who are there, if they hear the prophecy coming, the secrets of their heart are disclosed, and they'll fall on their face and worship God. But it's spontaneous. And I would suggest here then that in verse 27 or 29, no, verse 30, when he says, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one may keep silent, that revelation is a spontaneous word given by God to that person right on that moment. And again, I've supported the scriptures as to why. Okay. Lots said there. A mouthful. So how was prophecy to be ordered then? Verse 29 through 32. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. First, notice here the limitation as, in, as the same being in tongues. The limitation is to like basically, um, uh, you know, two or three, and uh, that's all that can speak at one time. Again, um, it's hard to know what the limitation is there. Was it limitation per service? Or was it a limitation to how many could speak in a row before an interpretation came? Uh, I don't know, but you can think those things through. Um, anyhow, the second, though, is that there is a process of evaluation in verse 29. After these prophets speak, you're to pass judgment. And so, again, I briefly mentioned it, but I'll speak more to what it is now. What's the test? How do you evaluate uh, a prophecy, whether it's true or not? 
Well, again, Paul doesn't tell us because he assumes the Corinthians already know. <laughs> but we don't know because he never tells us. Well, I would say this. To know whether it's from God or not, one key area, the most important, is you evaluate it against the Word of God. You evaluate it against the Word of God. See if it's consistent with Scripture. Is it consistent with the character of Jesus? Character of the Lord in the Old Testament? Is it doctrinally consistent with the things in the Old and New Testament? If it contradicts anything in any way, you would want to discard it, because it wouldn't be from the Lord. It would be from that person's own spirit. Again, in verse 37, Paul kind of talks about his authority trumping all the prophetic experiences. He says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. In other words, Paul's saying this, the buck stops with me. Not a conceited statement. He was appointed by Jesus Christ. He says, the buck stops with me. You, You start listening to my instruction here. That trumps how you operate in this church. One more suggestion, and I don't have a specific verse for this. This comes from Andrew, not from the Bible, but I will support it so you can discard it if you want. I don't care. But I will just say one thing from from what I see as reading between the lines in Scripture. I think when prophecies are more general than they are specific, we need to be leery of them. What do I mean by this? If someone stands up in the church and says, I have a word from the Lord, Someone in this church is going to have to fight temptation this week. That's general. Well, yeah, there's 50 people here. Uh, I'll, fa- I'll face temptation about six hours from now when I go home or whatever, right? I mean, that's just a common out. That's just, who isn't? Actually, raise your hand if you weren't tempted in any way this week, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. But that's, a, that's the kind of things people stand up and say, and then the church is like, whoa, I wonder who it is and how it's going to happen. Am I going to fall? Am I going to, am I going to honor the Lord? Like, like, you know, is it financial? Is it, like, what is it? Like, you know, like these are the kind of things. When you look at prophecy in the New Testament or Old Testament, it's always specific. It's specific. Agabus in chapter 11 stood up and said, there's a famine that's going to touch the whole world and touch Jerusalem. Not, there's a tragedy coming in the distant future, church. Right? Acts 21, he said to Paul when he went to Jerusalem that he was going to be um, bound, bound, and uh, basically handed over to the Gentiles, and bound by Jews, handed to the Gentiles. Specific, the city, what was going to happen to him, who was going to do it, who was going to be delivered to. These are very specific things. And so if someone gives general prophecies in here, I'm going to see them as leery. Um, just because God is a God of specificity. <laughs> All right. Let's look now at the second stage, or third stage, I'd say. We've got there to take, uh, there should be three at the most in limitation. There's to be a testing process. Now third, instruction-wise, there's a format to be followed in terms of who is to be heard. He says, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, the key here is, is one by one, not simultaneous conversation. And he says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, you're under control in this. Like, 
you know, you have control, you may have the spiritual gift, but your spirit has control over that gift. And so you need to be exercise self-control in the way you manifest this gift. That means wait your turn, take your turn, defer to the one who has the next revelation and so on. This is really important. But notice the key here, why it has to be done in order. That's the key. In verse 31b, he says this, that all may learn and all may be exhorted. The purpose of order is that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Again, this is Paul's priority throughout the whole chapter. Edification of the body is key. It's not possible when you're competing for airtime, whether it be tongues or prophecy. But notice another key reason beyond edification. We pick this up in verse 33. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The reason why we're to be ordered is because the nature of God is ordered. The character of God is not one of confusion and chaos. The character one of God is one of order. That's obvious when we stare at creation. Everything has a purpose. Everything is designed so it works and is reliable. And so Paul's really saying this, the character of one's worship should reflect the character of one's God. The character of one's worship should reflect the character of one's God. At the same time, we need to seek healthy balance in this. We need to seek healthy balance. And I want to quote from Fee. Gordon Fee does a great job. Listen to this. Some Pentecostal and charismatic assemblies would do well to heed these directives. Confusion and disorders simply not in keeping with the character of God. Okay, Genesis House, we agree with that full-heartedly knowing our personalities here. Here's where Fee has something to say to the rest of us. On the other hand, Genesis House, verse 26 makes it clear that the peace and order of 33, God being one of order, does not necessarily mean somber ritual, as though God were really something of a stuffed shirt. If our understanding of God's character is revealed in our worship, then it must be admitted that God is not often thought in terms of allowing spontaneity or of joy. Right? So you don't have to do this. We stand and lift up our hands. Right? <laughs> we can have spontaneity. We can have a joy and worship the Lord. It's okay to go there, but just do it in order. Don't make a seat and cause chaos and our confusion. Okay? All right. So thank you, Fee, for that comment. Now we can go to the third group. The third group these uh, women who are creating disorder in the church. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are subject to themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them seek or let them ask their husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Many people in the Christian community have a real hard time with these verses. They see Paul as a sexist, as a misogynist, a woman hater, basically. And they basically just say, we can't subscribe to Paul because he obviously has it out for women. But let me just say that this is not a blanket statement against women whatsoever. Remember, he says here, you are to keep silent in the churches. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said what? When you are praying or prophesying, cover your head. So what is it? How can you pray and prophesy? And he's actually affirming this. 
He, in 14.1, he tells the women and men alike, I seek to prophesy in the corporate assembly, and now he tells them to be silent. It's a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction at all. Why? Because what's the context? It's to do with order and chaos. And so it, Paul doesn't have an ax to grind with women. This idea of keeping silent has already been used three or two other times in the context of men as well. Men have been told to keep silent in tongues. Men have been told to keep silent in uh, prophecy, and, as well as the women. And now he's got a specific issue with the females. So when we put this all together then, Paul can't contradict himself. So what is likely going on? What is likely going on? Well, the key is verse 35. The key is 30, verse 35. He says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. The key is the word learn. They're trying to learn something. That's what they're after. So probably what's going on then during the service is that the women are wanting clarification as to what's being taught or what's being said. And instead of just quietly whispering to their husband beside them, they're blurting it out and interrupting the teachers and everything going on to try to get airtime so they can have their questions answered. Again, it has to be something like that. It can't because women in chapter 11 are praying and prophesying out loud. They're permitted to speak. Paul's encouraging it. So clearly these women in the area of learning are disruptive in some kind of way. So instead of interrupting the pastor, the teacher, and having this issue going on, they are to go home and talk quietly with their husbands about what was learned in the service. This is what's going on. So again, Paul's not a misogynist. He's not out with an ax to grind against women. This is super important. We gain the context. So now put yourselves in their shoes after hearing Paul's instruction. You've been used to a church where you've blurted out with no holds barred any prophetic message you wanted. You've spoken in tongues over top of one another in heavenly languages with no interpreters. You've had certain women blurting things out during the teaching times. This is what you're used to, all in the belief that this is a evidence that God likes you and God's among you and you're spiritually mature. This is, your, this is your, your format. This is your structure to your church. Paul now comes along and says, wait a minute, this has to stop. The gifts don't have to stop, but the way you use them stops. It's a radical, radical shift from what they're used to. This would have been a hard pill for them to swallow. And so I get, I'm going to suggest that Paul anticipated that there was going to be pushback. And they would challenge his authority as an apostle by putting other teachers ahead of them in what they taught and maybe their experience above his word. And so Paul addresses this right away. He says in verse 38, no, 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. What an important statement from Paul. Yeah, this might, uh, you, know, you might think that you have this right, but let me just tell you this. You're in the wrong, and the buck stops with me. This is the Lord's commandment. As the apostle, I speak on behalf of Jesus, so from now on, you go God's way. You go the Lord's way. Again, it wasn't a power trip. It wasn't a pulling rank. It was just the fact that this was a reflection of God's character. This is what it was to be edified in the church, 
And this was Jesus' instruction. So Paul ends this way. He says in verse uh, 39, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. I love the way Paul ends. He wasn't saying stop prophesying, stop speaking in tongues with interpretation. He was just saying continue in the gifts, but use them in an orderly fashion. This is the way to do church God's way. So what do we learn? Number one, the gift of prophecy is not a reference to the ability to teach the word of God, but a gift of the Holy Spirit whereby a spontaneous revelation is given to a believer in order to be shared with others. I substantiated that with a lot of verses, and if you want those verses, I can give them to you. Again, the reason for this was so the believers could, believers could be edified and strengthened their faith, and unbelievers could be convicted in the assembly if they were there. Number two, as believers were not to immediately despise or reject prophecy, but evaluate it within the church body in a comparison with the authority of Scripture. This is really important, church, as we seek to have balance. I have said this in the past, so I'm going to put myself under the bus, and maybe some of you will join me in this. I've said this. We don't need prophecy in the church today. All we have is right here, and that's good enough for life. Okay, I, I still like understand that principle, and I still sort of lean that way, but that's not what Paul is suggesting here. He's saying that there's a different kind of gift other than the word of God that God wants to impart to the church community. But at the same time, we don't have to be scared because ultimately God's word still is the authority. It's still the authority. If it contradicts in any way, we go the Lord's way with what's said in the word. And the body of Christ is there to evaluate the prophecy. So it's a corporate understanding of this thing. So there's lots of checks and balances for prophecy in the church. Unfortunately, why we are so adamant against it is because we've seen too many abuses of it and with no checks and balances, and so we swing out the other way. Lesson number three. As believers, our corporate gatherings must be orderly so that the whole community may be edified. So that we learn, verse 35, all right, verse 31, and so it reflects God's character, verse 32. And finally, anyone who distracts from the proper order of the church gathering is to be silenced. <laughs> if you miss, use your gifts, if you're speaking out loud, whatever's going on, um, if your children are running up and down the aisles, like going, look at me, look at me, we just ask that we get order in the church and everything be maintained so that the believers can come to know God or the unbelievers can come to know God and the believers feel strengthened in their faith. And so I praise God for the order we have in Genesis House because we have a great church in this way. Amen.